For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after, saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Brilliant. Thank you, Christophine. That was the start of Hebrews chapter 10. We're in this series in the book of Hebrews, uh, and we come uh, to chapter 10 today. If you want to catch up, they're all on the website, so you can go back uh, and look through. In chapter 9, we have been talking and thinking about Jesus, the better sacrifice. As you would have picked up, as we move into chapter 10 today, we see the writer to the Hebrews is still on the same theme. You might think he's laboring his point here. We've done a chapter and a bit already on this. Why another chapter? But he wants the first readers, and us today, to see that this is the crux of the whole argument. Everything stands on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So you've got your Bibles open in front of you. Verse 1 reads, we just hear that then, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true forms of these realities. Now when we came to chapter 8, remember we looked at some of this shadow language. When we looked at it, we talked about good old Plato and his cave remember the illustration? Some chaps chained in a cave, constantly facing a wall, with a fire behind them, viewing life by the shadows they saw on the wall. Never experiencing reality, just what 
shadows were cast for them. But in some account of Plato's story, it goes a bit further. Some tell of how the chains of the men became loose, and one of the brave men decided to leave the cave and to go outside of it. But when faced with the brightness and the sharpness of reality, he goes back inside the cave. The freed prisoner would turn away and run back to what he was accustomed to. If you remember right at the start, we talked about one of the main purposes of this letter is to tell these Jewish converts who have converted to Christianity who were suffering this immense persecution to say, don't go back. Don't go back in the cave. You see, the Old Testament sacrificial system that we've been thinking about was this, a shadow, a signpost pointing forward to the real. But now that Jesus Christ has come, his sacrifice is the real deal. He is ultimately better. He is in a different league. So it's not a choice of choosing Jesus or sticking with the old. No, he blows the old out of the water. The boys and I have eagerly been awaiting the new release of the Ant-Man Marvel movie. We've been excited in anticipation for the last six months watching the trailers as they come out. And then on Friday, nine o'clock in the morning, we were there. We saw Ant-Man, one of the first to see it. And it was good. It was good. If you like that kind of thing, it was good. But you know what we didn't do? We didn't go home and carry on watching the trailers again. And we won't watch the trailers again for the Ant-Man movie because we've seen the real thing. Once the true form has been seen, you don't go back to the shadows. Once you've seen the real thing, you don't go and watch the trailers again. And the writer to the Hebrews wants to make sure that they've grasped this completely. So he gives what I think is this wonderfully clear, laid-out argument for this in this passage this morning. And that's what I want us to work through one more time this morning. This laid-out argument of the new over the old. And we need to start back in chapter 9, in these la- those last few verses, which we touched on slightly last week. So let me read this for us. Chapter 9, starting at verse 24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human ha- hands, that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven himself, itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he appeared once for all, at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. 
And he'll appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Did you see the word the writer wants us to see in that passage? Once. Said it three times just in our translation, but there's a few more in there as well. Once. Jesus' sacrifice was a heavenly once-for-all sacrifice. He'll compare it to the old in a moment, but he wants us again to see the wonder of Jesus' sacrifice. Christ has offered himself once. It's not repeated over and over, and it's not in an earthly tabernacle, but in heavenly places before God himself. Look at what he's achieved. This is where we finished last week, but we didn't pick up on some of these words. Verse 26 of chapter 9. By his sacrifice, he once for all put away sin. He once for all put away sin. The meaning of that word there is to, to annul sin, to take away its power. At the cross, Jesus Christ claimed victory over sin, to take away its oppression and its stranglehold on people. Now, that doesn't mean we don't know sin now in our world, or we don't personally sin, because we know we do. But it's power over us. It's hold. Well, we can know freedom from that now. We can know the ability to say no because of Jesus' sacrifice, because he defeated sin at the cross. But it's also deeply personal. Carry on to verse 28. Christ's once for all sacrifice is to bear the sins for many. It's deeply personal. My sin on him. It's the language of the prophets thinking of Isaiah and and his suffering servant. He bears our sin. And the language of the apostles afterwards, Peter says, he himself bore our sin in his body on the cross. He takes my sin. So he has the punishment. He bears my burden. So the penalty is removed from us, from me, so I can know forgiveness and peace with God. It's the picture from Pilgrim's Progress. As Christian, the main character there carries his burden on his back and he climbs a hill to face the cross. And these are Bunyan's words, he says, Now I saw in my dream that highway up which Christian was to go. It was fenced either side with a wall, and that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from his back and began to tumble and so continued to do, and I saw it no more. It's the picture. The burden rolls away. Or the old Sankey hymn, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. Oh, happy day. That is what Jesus Christ's once and all sacrifice does for those who come and turn to him as saviour. What a sacrifice, what a saviour. Jesus is once for all sacrifice. But into chapter 10, 
the writer wants to keep going with his argument. And the second thing the writer wants them to see is the inadequacy of the Old Testament system. We're thinking in verse 1 to 4 here, the Old Testament sacrifices were not only shadows, but he tells them that they could ultimately not save the people. They could never make them perfect, verse 1. They cannot take away sins, verse 4. And the main point of his argument is one that he's made before. The evidence for this is that these sacrifices needed to be repeated, contrasted with the once-for-allness of Jesus' sacrifice. They needed to be offered continually. It got me thinking, as I was trying to think of an illustration for this morning, that there isn't a lot of things in life that you only do once. If you want to get fit, you can go to the gym you can't do that just once, can you? After a couple of months of working out, you might feel fitter. But has the gym made you ultimately fit once for all? Well, no, because if you stop going, you return back to your old self. This is the writer's argument. You can judge how successful something is if, you can, if you're able to stop doing it. The Old Testament sacrificial system didn't ultimately make them clean because they needed to keep doing it. There is a reminder of sin constantly. Every new offering pointed to the fact that the last one didn't make you permanently clean and reminded you that in another year or so, you'd need to be doing exactly the same thing again. It was unfinished in its very nature. The old sacrificial system didn't save. It was there showing the seriousness of sin, the holiness of God, and pointing forward to something or someone better. So the argument naturally continues into verse 5 to 9 then. If Jesus wants for all sacrifices better... And the Old Testament sacrifices were inadequate, then therefore the new and better cancels out the old. And to do this, the author quotes Psalm 40 Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Now you might be asking, and I presume the original reader might have been asking, aren't these sacrifices ordained and required by God? Wasn't the sacrificial system God's idea? Yet here he says, no. You've not desired them. You don't take pleasure in them. Well, the answer is yes, they were. They were instituted by God. And in saying in Psalm 40, God doesn't delight in sacrifices. It doesn't make them wrong or bad. But what David is seeing there is what the sacrifices were for. 
Yes, a picture pointing forward, a reminder of sin and the holiness of God, but in and of themselves also an act of obedience, an act of worship through obedience to God. And it's a theme throughout the Old Testament when God is speaking to the people in Jeremiah chapter 7, he tells them that even before the sacrifices were given, the thing he told them, the earliest command was obey. Obey my voice and I'll be your God. Walk in the way I've commanded you. We read in 1 Samuel 15, 22, uh, 15 verse 22, has the Lord delighted in burnt offerings and, and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. You see, even with the old sacrificial system, it was always about the heart. It was always about the attitude and motivation. And we see in Israel, for most, the sacrificial system had become something of formality, something you just did. It had become legalistic. And this carried on into the Gospels with the attitude we see towards the law. They missed the point. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it, we read in Psalm 51. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. So as well as the sacrifice, sacrificial system not being able to save, the people had missed the very point of this system. But Psalm 40 is prophetic. And the writer of the Hebrews shows David's word pointing to Jesus. It's not about sacrifices and offerings, but a body you have prepared for me. God in human flesh. Jesus Christ coming to do the will of of God, just as the signposts in the scroll of the book, the Old Testament, had been pointing to. So the people's failings and the limitations of the old sacrificial system contrasted with the wonder of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. The only conclusion, the conclusion we see in verse 9, is he does away with the first in order to establish the second. I love the translation, does away with there. Sounds a bit mafia-like, doesn't it? We know what they mean when they say do away with someone. And that is exactly what the translation is here. It means to abolish, to kill off. Has that sense, this word. The old is cancelled and it's not coming back because the new is wonderful and Jesus is better. He's been telling us for chapters and chapters why Jesus is better, but why is this sac new sacrificial system, the new sacrifice of Jesus Christ, so much better? Well, in verse 10 to 13, he moves his argument on. We're back to the main point that Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all. But it was once for all because it didn't need to happen again. It was completed. It was sufficient. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. This is compared with the priestly sacrifices. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when we uh, looked at the tabernacle? 
We saw all the things it had there in it, the lampstand, uh, the table for the bread, the altar for the incense, the Ark of the Covenant. But do you see what it didn't have? No chairs. No chairs in the tabernacle. Verse 11, we have the priest. And what's the priest doing? He's standing. The priest is standing, symbolizing he has to keep going. It's your mum telling you she's been on her feet all day. What does she mean? She says she hasn't had a minute to stop. She's had to keep going. The ta- she's had enough tasks to fill the day. That's what the priest is doing here, standing. Because he has to daily offer sacrifices repeatedly. The priest's work isn't done. What about Jesus? Where is Jesus? He sat at the right hand of God. Here's the contrast in this passage. Every priest stands continually offering sacrifices that don't make you perfect. But Jesus, with his once-for-all sacrifice for sins, now sits. It's done. It's finished. Full atonement, can it be? Yes. He, di- he died, he prayed the price for sin, he was resurrected, and now he sits in heaven. We've largely seen the priestly role of Jesus in this sacrificial system, but now we see the kingly role. It's Psalm 110 language again. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is reigning. He is seated because his redeeming work is complete. He sits because it's done. No more sacrifice needed. He's done it all. The weakness of the old again shows how wonderful the new is. Our glorious priest king who saves and then sits. Jesus completed sacrifice and then the last few verses, 14 to 17. The wonder of Jesus' sacrifice. Because of this, we can know full and final forgiveness. Again, note the contrast between the two. The old, verse 1 says, can never make perfect those who draw near. But verse 14, because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice by a single offering, he has perfected all those who are being sanctified. We are made perfect. Now, you might get a little confused with the tenses in this passage. But they do hold a wonderful truth. Verse 10 tells us we have been sanctified. Perfect tense. It's happened. We have been sanctified. It's done. But here in verse 14, we are those being sanctified. So which is it? Are we sanctified or are we being sanctified? Well, it's both, as it often is in these cases. In Jesus, we are both those who are perfect and those who are being made holy. 
It's what those who have been around for a while know as what I call jelly mold theology. And sorry to those who have been around a while, but I'm going to remind us because we've got quite a few new folk in. Do you remember those old jelly molds? If you're old enough, they used to come in the shape of like a rabbit plastic and you put your jelly and your blancmange in and put it in the fridge. I don't know what blancmange is, do you? <laughs> put it in the fridge and you'd pull it out and it would come out in the shape of the mold. Well, if you can possibly, just go with the image. It's like a giant Jesus-shaped jelly mold. And when we come to Jesus, here's sinful, messy, dirty me. And the Jesus-shaped jelly mold goes over on top. And when the loving Heavenly Father looks down, he doesn't see dirty, sinful James. He sees Jesus. And he sees his perfection. And that's what it means when we are made perfect, when we are perfect, when we are sanctified. This is positional. It's not what we do. It doesn't grow or change. It's fixed. It's fact. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, when the Father looks and he sees Jesus for me, he sees me cleansed. He sees me perfect. Jesus does the will of the Father, we're told in this passage. He is the one, the only one who is fully obedient. He is perfect. And because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, to be in Christ means I get that too. When the Father looks at me, he sees the perfect obedience and the will of Jesus. So that's positional. It does not change. But there's also this sanctification that is happening, a becoming holy. And if you can use your imagination, that's what happens under the jelly mold. As the Holy Spirit works in me and I begin to grow, as I become to look a little more like Jesus, as this starts to take shape slowly, as the Holy Spirit works in me and God works in me and I align my heart more with Jesus, when I start to love the things that he loves more, when I start to hate the things that he hates more, God at work in me, making me more like his son. Being made perfect. Growing inside. And we see this wonderfully here in this passage. He has perfected, he has made perfect fact all those who are being sanctified, being made holy. And the writer shows this in the promise of the new covenant that he talked about a couple of chapters back. Verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's the perfect tense. Gone. Holy before God because of Jesus Christ. And that's the promise of the gospel. Whatever you have done, whatever your life looks like now before you come to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ went to the cross, 
took your sin upon himself and died in the place. You can come to him, seek forgiveness. Come and say, Jesus, I want you to be number one. Be Lord of my life. Thank you for your sacrifice. Make me yours. When we do that, he promises that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And whatever you have done, whoever you are, whatever your life looked before, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you will be made perfect in the sight of a loving Heavenly Father. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. But this groan by the Holy Spirit being made holy comes in verse 16. When in the new covenant we were told the law will be written on our hearts and our minds. One writer summed it up in this way and I loved this. The new covenant, he says, is this. The heart of this new relationship is focused on what we choose to remember and what God chooses to forget. What we choose to remember, God's law written on our hearts and minds. And what he chooses to forget, our sin gone. As far as the east is from the west. That's how far he has removed our sins from us. Though your sins are red like scarlet, they shall be white like wool. You couldn't find that in the old. This is all because of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. So there's the writer's argument laid out. His defense. Imagine it in a court of law. Here's his defense. Five points. And what would his concluding remarks be? Verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's done. Don't go back. You can't go back. It's all about Jesus and his sacrifice and he is better. Don't go back. But what about us as we finish this morning? What do we take from this? I'm presuming here that none of us are feeling the pull to go back to a sacrificial system. No one is desperate at the end of this service to go outside and sacrifice a goat, I'm sure. But the message is still the same for us. It's all about Jesus and the cross. And his sacrifice is sufficient. It's enough, it's better. So don't cling to what you had. Don't pine for what the world has. Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. For, my, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. and I count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Don't pine for that. Jesus is better. And don't get lost in ritual, in legalism. Don't get lost just going through the motions because it's all about him. And he is worthy. Don't let doubts overtake you. Don't let the devil tell his lies that you can't be saved because you're not good enough. You're not. 
but you can be saved because Jesus is. He is perfect. And in him, because of his sacrifice, if you have saved, if you have come to him, then you are made perfect. And that is how the Father sees you. Don't let fear consume you. You are his, whatever the future holds, whatever anyone can do to you. My life is hid with him on high, and I will be with him forever. You see, the writer has spent these chapters making sure that these guys get it, these first readers. But the Lord wants us to see this morning just as much. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his sacrifice. It's all about what he did because he is better. But before we sing to close, let's take a minute to to reflect. Reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Have you responded to it this morning? Can you say, I am now being made perfect in the sight of a loving Heavenly Father who I've sinned and rebelled against? Not because of anything I've done, not because of who I am, but because of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. If you can, praise God and live for him this day in that sacrifice, in that confidence, in that assurance. And if you can't say that yet this morning, well, God wants to say that to you. And he wants you to consider that. And he wants you to come. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved.